Welcome to the Wellbeing Economy podcast. In this series, we're discussing the transport sector and how the design of stations and airports improves the experience of travellers and the communities that they connect. My name's Catherine Sangani, and I'm concept developer of Wellbeing at SES International. Joining me today is Harbinder Birdi, Creative Director of Birdie and Partners Limited and former senior partner at Hawkins Brown Architects, specialising in transport and infrastructure. Harbinder's portfolio includes Crossrail, HS2 and Dublin Metro, to name a few. Welcome, Harbinder. Thank you, Catherine. I think one of the main topics that I'd like to start on is about attracting travellers. How has hybrid working and transport strikes affected public transport? It has had a really big impact on, 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 on cities and transport systems, systems in general. Historically, what you'd have is the morning and evening peak. I think at its peak, London in itself would have something like 4 million people jumping on the tube every single day. Many of them would be travelling between the hours of 6.30 and 9 o'clock and then leaving between five and eight and actually now since the pandemic that's been completely disrupted if you look at working patterns now typically people are going into central london and into the centre of major cities on a tuesday wednesday thursday but on the monday and the fridays they typically are working from home and so i think that's had a real impact on cities the economies of cities um, and also for the transport providers There used to be a big reliance on having season tickets and having, I suppose in a way, a a, a committed commuter that was paying for transit into the cities, whereas now that's not the case, especially with flexible working. And I think it's going to take a bit of time before major cities understand what the implications are of COVID. But I see things not really changing back to the pre-COVID era. I think people are used to now working from home. I think businesses trust their employees to work from home. And so what that will mean is that transport nodes are going to have to be redesigned or they're going to have to evolve for the varying, varying patterns. But I do think that there are opportunities. I mean, if you look at most people that are now coming into work, what they want to do is work in a great place to meet their colleagues, to share ideas, and then they want to go to the gym afterwards or they want to go to the theatre afterwards they want to go for drinks or a meal afterwards and they want to be sort of sociable. So when they are coming into the city, what they will be doing is spending time in the evenings or before work to do other activities, where historically that might not have been the case. And do you think that more needs to be done by designers and investors of transportation hubs to attract people away from using cars? I think in central London it's fair to say that because London is so well connected with the new transport network, especially with the new Elizabeth Line as well, generally people aren't really driving in. So if you look at the people, if you look at the cars on the roads, the vehicles on the roads, they're either essentially taxis or or white vans or deliveries. And so very few people in terms of central London will be driving because it's so well connected. And actually there's been a big push by TfL to actually have active travel and put and to encourage people to actually cycle whole raft of sort of cycling lanes within central London. And then that network actually goes from sort of zone one, two, all the way out to zones three, four. I think what is interesting is the outer zones of cities in terms of, if you look at London, the zones three to six, where typically what people will be doing is when they want to sort of 
travel, they'll be using their car because essentially it's, it takes them from point to point. And I think what TfL and various other cities will be looking to do is that if you don't want to go into the centre and you're using your car, which is typically you know, a, a, you know, a two, three mile drive, how do you encourage people to get out of their cars and actually walk? And that's where this big conversation about the 15 minute city has been sort of uh, coming from. 15 minutes is essentially how long you can walk typically before you get tired. It's essentially sort of, you know, a, a mile. What that is trying to do is actually saying that London, which is essentially a patchwork of villages, how do you encourage people to walk 15 minutes for the day-to-day -day sort of activities, amenities, in terms of um, shopping, etc., going to the gym, going to the school, etc., without using the car? I think it's the outer zones that are going to be the next big challenge for local authorities to discourage people to use cars for journeys within their, their, their local communities. I think there is still going to be a big push for people to have active travel. I mean, there's lots of bikes now which are electrically powered. Um, I haven't got one myself, but the people that I do know that have them, they're really big fans because what it allows them to do is travel further distances without breaking into a sweat. And London's quite flat. I mean, many of the cities in, in, in the UK are generally quite flat. And in London, it doesn't really rain that much. And so I think what will happen is that city planners will be looking to encourage people to use active travel. That's walking, that's cycling. And when they do use cars, what they will be, I think, will be a push to use electric cars. And so what you do have is less pollution. And if you look at many of the London boroughs now, they're looking to put electric charging points because so many people haven't got facilities to charge their cars because haven't got driveways and they've got sort of uh, off-street parking. You mentioned the Elizabeth line and I know you've been involved in the delivery of many of the Crossrail stations. How successful has that project been in terms of connecting communities and drawing people back to the city? It's fair to say that I think Crossrail has been, the Elizabeth line has been far too successful. You know, they, they originally anticipated 400,000 people jumping on the Elizabeth line every day. So it was designed to take 10% of the daily commuter traffic on the underground, 400,000. I think at its peak it took 600,000. And what I think was interesting is that I think the system was originally planned where the transport planners and economists thought that what Londoners really wanted was speed of connectivity. So what they wanted to do was get as close to their destination using the tran underground network as they possibly could, which was speed. But that wasn't the case. What happened instead was that what people said was that I'll jump on the Elizabeth line and I'll, and I'll get as far, as close to my destination as possible and then I'll walk the rest of the way. And I think that's what's happened. And I think what people have realised is that I would rather walk 15 minutes from Elizabeth Line station in central London than actually get a connection onwards. Because once you get that connection onwards, what happens then is that you don't know how reliable that connection will be, but also you're using an older network. I live in Ealing, I live in West London. And I remember before the Elizabeth Line, we used to have the Heathrow Connect, which I think was a four-car train. And remember the eight o'clock train was really, really busy and it was a four-car train. And now we have Elizabeth Line with an eight, nine-car train. It's twice the size and it's still really full. And so I think what's happening now is that Crossrail was always designed where there will be 
housing development around the stations and around those boroughs, so both in East London and West London. And so what you will have with the network is that more and more people moving to those areas because homes are being built there, and then they'll be using the Elizabeth Line to take them into central London. But I think it's a bit like HS2, where originally it was all about speed, and then actually they realise it's not about speed, it's about capacity. And what you'll find on the Elizabeth Line is that they'll be running more and more trains as more and more people move to those areas which are in the zones three to six, which the Elizabeth Line serves so well. I certainly think there's something to be said about how beautifully designed all of the Crossrail stations are. How do transport hubs, which are usually very industrial in their design, appeal to the senses or celebrate local culture? Well, I think, I think if you look at the difference between the Jubilee Line extension and Crossrail, their design philosophies were very different. So even though you had individual architects, different practices designing the Jubilee Line extension, the design philosophy, the design approach was for a very industrial, high-tech aesthetic. And that was essentially driven by the chief architect at the time, who wanted that aesthetic where there was um, essentially a high-tech, modernist approach to the design of all the stations. With Crossrail, each of the stations have been designed by different architects, but they were the brief was for the design of the station, the ticket halls, to reflect the character of the area that they exist within London. And London is a patchwork of villages, all with its own character, very historic. And so for the architects, we had a fantastic opportunity on stations like sort of Paddington, Atonic Court Road and, and Bond Street Station, and even Whitechapel, for them to be very, very different in both character, materiality. And that's where I think the architects had more influences to be able to shape the design of their stations. But these were, the design of these stations were essentially sort of gateways that enabled you to understand the character of the area that you were about to enter. And I think that's very different from the design of the Jubilee Line um, stations, which in the main were designed with an overarching design philosophy, which was the sort of high-tech modernist designer of its time. Maybe for some of our listeners who haven't used the Elizabeth Line, could you just describe a couple of the stations and how they've been able to interpret the local culture? Well, I'll start with the station that I've spent um, God, over 13 years um, helping shape, which is Tottenham Court Road Station. And there at Tottenham Court Road Station, we had two ends of the station. One was underneath um, Centre Point, which is in the area of St Giles, which has actually straddled two boroughs, both Westminster and Camden. And Centre Point was an iconic building built in the sort of 1960s by CIFA, a beautiful sort of like modernist building. And the area around St Giles there, what we did with the station there was we kept the interior of the station very light and bright. And we also integrated a lot of artwork there, some artwork by the French minimalist Daniel Beren. We also refurbished and maintained the beautiful mosaic artwork by Eduardo Paolozzi. We commissioned uh, an artist, Richard Wright, to create a beautiful in-situ artwork within the station as well. So that was a very light, bright interior, which acted as a wayfinding device. Because at the other end of the station, which is in Soho, which has a nighttime economy, what we did was that we actually clad the interior using 
black glass and stone. So it's very nocturnal. And that station was actually 250 meters away from the other end of the station. So they're huge stations. I mean, the only stations of this scale anywhere in the world are on actually Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong MTR Metro. So at Tottenham Court Road Station, we, we used color to help you navigate through this underground labyrinth of, of spaces. And then within the tunnels, the brief was for actually all the tunnel environments to be designed by the same architect, they were consistent, and they were designed by Grimshaw Architects. And there we had a very simple white cladding uh, made out of glass reinforced fibre cement. At Bond Street, there was two ends of the station there, which was in Davis Street and Hanover Square. And there, the materiality of the station buildings reflected some of the Victorian architecture that's adjacent to the buildings. There were historic neighbourhoods within Westminster. And so there, the architect John McCaslin used simple materials like Portland Stone um, at Davis Street, at Hanover Square, and at Davis Street, it was um, a beautiful red sandstone. So again, the buildings sat comfortably within their neighbourhoods. And then above them, they had oversight developments as well. So there was another conversation there between the oversight development architect and the station architect as well. So these buildings looked as though they were designed by essentially one architect where the materiality between the station and the oversight building was as one. If you go to Liverpool Street Station, that is such a huge station. One end of the station is actually in Moorgate, in the Moorgate London Underground Station, and the other one intersects with Liverpool Street Station. And there the architects, Wilkinson Air, what they, they did was that they actually took, the, I suppose, the visual aesthetic of the white platform area, and they took that into the ticket hall, and they clad the interiors using a combination of white glass and perforated metal, triangulated, and they used precast white concrete soffits that were ribbed, that were sort of undulating on both ticket holes, so that one would be able to understand that they were in the cross-rail station. And I think that was very, very key, which was you have the London Underground Network and then you have cross-rail, and it was very critical for the architects to make the, the user, the passenger, able to navigate between the two various modes. From your work on those projects, what can we learn from new integrated technologies? Are there improvements to help with that journey? When I go to cities around the, you know, the, the, the globe and even within the UK, one of the things that they always ask about is, is how, how well the Oyster system is working, you know, which is actually only about 22 years old. But it's a fantastic city, which is effectively it creates frictionless transit. So what we're having more and more with technology is that everybody has their favourite app that gives them, like CityMapper, etc., which gives them the best possible route in terms of the modes of transit that they want to sort of um, use, whether it be walking or cycling or a combination of trains, etc. So everybody has their app of choice that gives them the least resistant way of actually navigating the city. But then systems like Oyster, apps that you've got in terms of um, uh, your phone, what generally transport networks are trying to do is get people through onto the stations, onto the mode of transit, 
and then off again as quickly as possible. And I think there's great software that enables you to do that. But I think the challenge will be is the experience that passengers have as they move through these transport nodes and the reliability of the various transit networks. Uh, you know, Crossrail, Elizabeth Line, you know, was criticised recently just in terms of the service. But I think that, you know, it's a new system. There are a few sort of teething problems. And generally, in principle, in terms of punctuality, it's actually very, very good. I suppose the challenge is that it's just been really sort of successful because it's a great piece of engineering and it's a great system. So I think Londoners have embraced the system because it is so well designed. But I do think the next iteration is, is less about speed, but experientially, what is the quality of the transit? And I think that's where people are going are, are gonna to sort of be a lot more sort of selective in terms of how they move across the city. Is, is not, it's not just going to be about speed. It's going to be about reliability. It's going to be about connectivity. It's going to be how the system makes you feel as you move through it. I agree. And actually, when you mention that... I think of when they introduced a public piano to St Pancras International Station and it encouraged people to stop and think or listen within the space rather than rush through. Do you know of any transportation hubs that are really leading or that you maybe look up to in terms of their design? I always remember like um, a Tottenham Road station. TfL actually, they audition the buskers on the network before they actually give them uh, a space to perform. And I know that Tottenham Court Road Station on the London Underground, uh, we, we created this new edit, and it's obviously this circular tunnel. But apparently all the musicians say that acoustically it's a great place to perform. They've got a piano there, they've got several buskers um, in one station. And I think in a way, Tottenham Court Road Station, um, because it's near Soho, you know, there's lots of theatres there, there's lots of gig spaces there. The station in itself has become effectively a theatre which is, I think is really interesting. And I think Tottenham Court Road in particular has that mix of people where you've got people that go to work, you've got students, you've got people going to the theatre, you've got people going for a night out, etc. It's fair to say in all of London, it's probably got the sort of most diverse users. But what's great is that there's an atmosphere in there that's been, that's been allowed to be created or allowed to happen by Transport for London which says, actually, you're about to have a good time in this part of the city and the station is part of that experience. Do you think there's a way in which stations do or should support the well-being of staff? Very much so. I think, I think the well-being of staff is actually key. A typical Crossrail station will take 200,000 people a day. And if you think about the staff that are helping people move through these spaces especially people that are new, especially if a train gets delayed by 10 minutes, you, you normally get this like, flock of people that are, are asking the attendants when's the next train. And there's a big move now to actually have staff not behind a glass screen. So the staff are there in the space with the passengers. And so what we do need to do when you've got staff working in these spaces for long periods of time, and also when they're underground where there's no daylight, and there are these like confined spaces. What should those spaces be like? And actually, it's fair to say that I think the Elizabeth line, um, if you look at the environment on the platforms, which are 250 metres long, they're about four and a half metre deep platforms, they're great spaces to dwell and meet. And, and I've noticed, you know, on a Friday night, 
at 11 o'clock if you're on the Elizabeth line. It's very different from if you're on the Tottenham Court Road Station London Underground line at 11 o'clock at night, which has a completely different atmosphere. So I do believe that the quality of the space makes you act different, even if you've had a few drinks. And I think by doing that, what it does is that it makes you, it makes you act with the staff in a very different way as well. And it's just for things like visibility. It's about being able to hear each other. It's, it's about being in an acoustically attenuated space that sort of even, you know, typically when you feel bad to go to Heathrow and the train's delayed and you want to get a flight, you're stressed. And what you want to do is try and create an environment where somebody, the attendant, can put you at ease by giving you the information that you need and then the stress is over. And I think it works both ways. If you have lots of passengers that are stressed, then what will happen is that they will then take it out on the attendant. Can the architecture change the way those conversations happen? And I think it can. And I think it's evident, especially on, in, on projects like Crossrail. And how do you think net zero goals have affected the design of transport hubs? Major transport hubs in terms of underground, to actually achieve net zero is actually difficult in the sense that the material that you need to make these structures from is concrete, steel and glass, which essentially is very carbon intensive. However, the lifespan of those projects is 120 years. So if you think about, if we say, well, that concrete is going to be in the ground for 120, if not more, 200 years, it's well worth using the carbon for that piece of structure because once it's in, it's, it's there forever. So whenever we're designing infrastructure transport hubs, we design using the most robust materials that need the least amount of maintenance. And that in itself is sustainable. There are other transport hubs where, especially above grade, where you can use timber. But the challenge with timber is that it's combustible and it's a robustness. And I think that is going to be the next evolution of design, which is how do you use timber on transport hubs to reduce the embodied carbon? But I think the big challenge is really is getting people onto the system. And so there's an argument to say if you design an underground system or a transport system that is heavily used, that gets people out of the cars, that in itself is sustainable. And also it's like you know, if when you're designing an airport, is it the carbon involved in the fuel? But if you think about the sheer amount of carbon that's involved in the transit of the people getting to the airport. So... I think it's not just about the design of the fabric of the building, it's about the ecosystem and the carbon involved in sustaining those projects for the lifespan of the, the node. You mentioned lifespan and a number of Britain's railway stations are coming up to nearly 200 years old. Do you think that our new stations will stand the test of time? I think they will. The designs of our newer sort of stations, they've got a, a huge lifespan on. I think they'll just go on and on and on. The, the challenge for us when we have really old networks is how do you retain as much of the existing fabric of the stations? What can you use? Which bits do you need to renew? How do you expand those um, existing hubs that serve so many communities for the new needs of those communities? But I think the design of our newer infrastructure hubs will definitely last the test of time. And I think it's evidenced on projects like the Jubilee Line, etc. 
which have been running now for like over like 23 years now, they still run really well. And I think the same will be said of, of Crossrail in many years to come. HS2 has brought a lot of controversy, particularly recently, with the delays as well as the news that it won't yet be going straight into the centre of London as previously planned. Where do you see the benefits of HS2 for the public as well as for staff retention and employment? The UK is actually, you know, it's a very small island. And it's fair to say that I think when HS2 first was promoting itself as a project, Speed wasn't really the big need, it's capacity. It has an opportunity to regenerate areas of major cities, to enable new developments, or to enable new mixed-use parts of the city which are connected to these transport hubs, which connects the north and the south. It's difficult to say how it will shape the north or the Midlands, but I think if we are going to move away from the car and use rail infrastructure for the transit of goods and people, then HS2 is essential. What we do need to do, it's fair to say, is, is actually just get on with the project. HS2 will be coming to Euston, but we just need to get on with it. With all these major projects, what does happen is that, you know, if you delay the project, typically the cost of those projects does escalate. And so um, what we hope is, is that any government that's in will fully commit to the project and actually just get it going because what the industry really wants is certainty what businesses really want is certainty and um, there's there's great expertise in the country to be able to deliver this project that I've been working on it and what they really want to do is, um, is is deliver the project as soon as possible thank you so much Harbinder for joining us today on the podcast thank you Catherine if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to the series The Wellbeing Economy was brought to you by SAS International.